there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Hey, this is DeRay. And welcome to Bots of the People. In this episode, it's two interviews, two amazing people. One is Dr. Jarvis R. Givens to talk about the history of Black change within the academic setting. He focuses on what he calls fugitive pedagogy. Learned so much. It's a great book. And he is an interesting scholar. And then Kaya interviews John King to talk about the future of education. And John is also running to be the next governor of Maryland. Here we go. My advice this week is to pay it forward. Pay it forward. Do good in the world. People have done good for you. Pay it forward, y'all. I, this whole week has been like a week where people have paid it forward in my life. I've been paying it forward. Pay it forward. Pay it forward. Harvard professor Jarvis R. Gibbons is here to talk about his new book, Fugitive Pedagogy. Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching. I learned so much. It's such an incredible sort of exploration of the history of liberation teaching through Carter G. Woodson. I think you'll love it too. Here we go. Dr. Gibbons, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's start out with sort of zooming out before we zoom into the book. Can you talk about how you became a professor at Harvard? You're so young, which is so dope. But what was your path to studying education? Like, why did you always want to be a professor? Did you sort of go to school and then you like took a class and it changed your life and you became a professor? Like, what was that? How did you get to this place? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I actually did not go to college to be a college professor. I really had no idea what it what went into being a professor. I'm a first generation high school and college graduate. And so when I got to college, I thought I was on my way to go to law school. But I had a professor in the spring semester of my sophomore year. Her name was Professor Eula Taylor. She was a historian of black women's history. And her course on African-American life during the industrial age uh, was really a mind-blowing kind of educational experience and really set me on a path to consider what it was that she actually did beyond just the kind of teaching in the classroom. And I started to learn more about research um, and got into doing research on African-American history as a student in that class. And, you know, that opened up a new door and a new window in my mind about what was possible for my future. And I decided that I wanted to, you know, abandon the idea of going to law school and decided that I wanted to get a Ph.D. That's how I decided that I wanted to become a college professor because I had an excellent college professor who subsequently became my dissertation advisor as well when I got to graduate school at UC Berkeley. So that that's the story. It was not planned. And I'm still kind of figuring it out as I go along. And talk to us about how you got to the book. Why a book? Like, why not an essay? Or was this a series of essays that turned into a book? Was this what you did in your dissertation and it became a book? Like, how did you get to the book? And then we'll jump into the book itself. I had questions around Black masculinity and the history of Black social movements that I wanted to explore for my dissertation. And in the second semester of my graduate program, I read a book called Their Highest Potential, which was about a high achieving black school in the Jim Crow South in North Carolina. And it really changed so many of my own thoughts and perspectives around the history of black education. That book helped me to start to realize that there was more to the story of black education prior to Brown 
the board than just the story of lack and dilapidated school buildings and those sorts of images that we tend to have in our mind when we imagine black education before Brown, before desegregation. But in the context of this book, it was the story of this very culturally rich, thriving black educational community outperforming white schools in the context of North Carolina and and beyond. And that led me on a path to start looking more into the history of black education in terms of the kind of history and the rich traditions of black teachers that was very central to so much of the civil rights struggles that we think of in the past, um, because so many of the leaders that we celebrate and that we hold up were actually products of the education in these black segregated schools. And obviously behind that was the work of these educators and teachers who have been doing very important work for generations. But that book was important because it had a personal connection to me. You know, I'm from Compton, California, and I went to a small black parochial school in Compton in the 1990s when I was growing up um, from preschool through eighth grade. And I had all black teachers my entire life. And I always had a positive relationship to school and a positive educational experience. Um, And it wasn't until I got to college that I realized that there were many black students who had went their entire life with one or no black teachers at all. And that was very foreign to me. When I started to think about it, I then realized that a lot of the cultural practices at the school that I attended um, were shaped by the teachers at this school who had been themselves had been educated in the Jim Crow South. And so that book that I mentioned from my first year of graduate school had it resonated with me personally because even though it was a very different historical time period than when I grew up, there were so many resonances between the relationships between the teachers and the students, the political ideology undergirding the education, and the kind of communal approach to education that was so central for making education meaningful for my own life, but also in the lives of the students in that book that I referenced from my first year of grad school. And that just led me on the path to wanting to uncover more about the history of black education for us to have a more expansive perspective about that story and and what it offers to us for confronting some of the challenges we see in education today. Now, in Fugitive Pedagogy, it is a focus on Carter G. Woodson. He is not necessarily a guide through the book, but he's the through line in so many ways. Uh, Why Woodson? And you write about his family sort of being educators and introducing him into it. But, But how did you stumble? I feel like there are probably a host of ways you could have told this story. But you chose Woodson for a reason. What was that reason? Yeah, so Woodson, I just think that his life is emblematic of the tradition that I'm trying to write about. You know, Woodson was the child and student of formerly enslaved black people. His first teachers were his formerly enslaved uncles. And not only is he the student and the child of former slaves, but he just kind of runs the gamut of black educational experience, right? From the one-room schoolhouse in the rural context of Virginia to him going on to be the second black person to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard in 1912. Um, But he was also a public school teacher for nearly 30 years. He really legitimized the field of, at the time, what was referred to as Negro history, the study of African-American history or black history in the academy today. Um, And he did this work as an educator. He felt that there were a lot of important questions that needed to be raised in terms of our broader conceptualization of knowledge and human history overall. And he recognized this because he was a teacher and was very attentive to the distortions about black life in school curriculum, curriculum that he himself encountered as a student, but also the curriculum that he was being forced to rely on in teaching students. 
And so Carter G. Woodson is important because of the intellectual work he did to challenge what he called the miseducation of the Negro in the context of American schools, but also because his life allowed me to kind of trace the politics of black education from the period of enslavement um, and in his life right after slavery being taught by formerly enslaved people all the way through the kind of, you know, to the ranks of the most elite universities that we think of in the U.S. when we think about Harvard University. And he also attended the University of Chicago. Um, and he taught also for a short period of time at Howard. So Woodson's life allowed me to kind of trace this tradition of what I call fugitive pedagogy through these various different facets of black educational life during the period of the 19th century and up and through the Jim Crow era. And Woodson was my introduction to, to really thinking about these things deeply because when I was in graduate school writing my dissertation, I learned that he started writing and publishing school textbooks that were widely used by black teachers uh, during the Jim Crow period. It really just kind of blew my mind, this idea that during this period of Jim Crow, you had black teachers engaging in this very robust and rich intellectual world as not just consumers of knowledge, but also people who were producers of knowledge, right? And this is something that I, of course, knew, but to understand that black teachers were doing this in such a systematic way was something that I felt like we had yet to appreciate. And Woodson, in creating Negro History Week, which we celebrate today as Black History Month, and creating these textbooks and so many other things, just allowed me to trace the genealogy and those set of practices in, in various different ways. Can you talk to us about the Watchman on the Wall? Uh, you, you write about uh, the association and his organizing attempts and sort of the struggles that he has with negotiating white funders and what that looks like and, and why he chooses at some points not to go to black colleges because they are beholden to white funders, which was fascinating to me. But can you talk about this concept of the Watchman on the Wall and what that means in the grand scheme? Woodson, when he begins, he's a school teacher in 1915, and he you know, he's already got his Ph.D. from Harvard, but he's still teaching um, because we know that even as some black folks early in the 20th century, when they received advanced degrees, they were blocked out of the academy in many ways. Um, but so he was still teaching as a high school teacher, but he created an organization called the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915. Um, 1915 is an important year for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because, you know, we have to think about what's happening in the world in terms of the kind of world war. But then also, this is the 50th anniversary of black emancipation. This same year, we also know that the film, The Birth of a Nation, which was considered one of the most technologically advanced films to ever come before the nation, right? It's filmed and screened at the White House. And of course, we know The Birth of a Nation is a film that depicted black people in the most horrendous fashion, right? And also celebrated the Ku Klux Klan as saviors of the nation. So in 1915, Woodson created this organization that was committed to challenging dominant scripts of knowledge and particularly rewriting representations of black life in the story of human history, but also in the context of American history. Woodson is a school teacher, so he's very attentive to why this is important for thinking about the cultivation of leadership, and the development of black students' minds as well. So this organization that he creates, he has to create outside of formal institutions because even HBCUs at the time are beholden to white funders and white boards, um, and in many cases, white faculty as well. This, this same year that Woodson creates his organization, 
a school like Howard University has a number of black faculty, but many of those black faculty are not allowed to teach classes that explicitly engage the experiences of African-American life and history. And in fact, in 1950, a course proposal was put forward for a course on race relations that's denied by the academic faculty, right? So what I'm saying is that Woodson is having to do a lot of this work outside of the traditional routes of education. And so he creates an institution. And in order to create this institution, it requires him to seek out funding from white philanthropists and uh, white reformers during the time period who might be sympathetic to the cause that he's trying to do. But that leads to other problems, right? Oftentimes, Woodson's ideas and intellectual perspectives might have been seen as a bit more radical than what some of these white funders would have liked. We get to a point to where Woodson is constantly having to navigate, pushing forward the agenda that he has in mind, but also trying to navigate the constraints and the pushback that he's receiving from the people who's actually giving him the funding to do this work. And of course, we know black folks, having been just a few generations out of slavery, have very little in terms of material resources to kind of build institutions on their own without some form of interracial cooperation. And so Woodson, in his own experience of white paternalism, becomes very frustrated. And he starts to write about this very publicly in The Miseducation of the Negro, but also in terms of uh, his leadership style and trying to assert autonomy over this institution that he's creating to try to challenge the anti-blackness that he sees taking place in all realms of the American school system, whether it be in higher education or in the primary and secondary schools. And he's saying, in order for us to do this work well, black scholars and black educators need to have autonomy over this work that we're doing. And we can't be beholden to the ideological constraints of white funders just because they're giving us money to do this work. And he's very explicit about that. And he doesn't make very many friends among the white philanthropic community in doing that. And so by the 1930s, he's essentially ostracized from the community of white philanthropists. And he comes to rely more heavily on a lot of smaller donations from a larger number of African-American people, and in large part, black teachers. Black teachers become really the, the main constituency of folks who are supporting the work that he's doing and helping to sustain the organization he created through the Depression era. Another part of the book, you talk about um, the difference between the miseducation of the Negro and the uneducation of the Negro. Can you just help explain that to people? That line that you're referring to is mostly me trying to just make a clarification. I think a lot of people use or gesture towards Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro to talk about all things that have to do with inequality and injustice in the context of school when it comes to black folks, right? And one of the things that is important is that Woodson is not, I mean, he's, he's concerned with access to education in his book, in, in his writings, and in, in his scholarship, but that's not his primary concern. His primary concern is not, it's not just about black people gaining more access to education of any kind. He's concerned about the ideological parameters of, you know, the substance of the education when they did get access to it. So, for instance, he wrote an article in the early 30s that said it took him 20 years to recover from his education at Harvard and places like the University of Chicago, where he had professors that flat out told him that there was no such thing as black history and culture, or at least none worthy of respect. And these were the kind of ideas and dominant schools of thought that shaped 
academia and curriculum during the time period that Woodson is writing in. And so Woodson is saying it doesn't necessarily do us much service if we're inculcating students into a knowledge system that denies their suffering and that denies their cultural and historical achievements as a race or as a community of folks. He's raising questions about how that might not just distort their own image of themselves, but how it becomes an impediment for the work of freedom, right? For the work of pushing in and advancing an agenda that in the interest of the communities that they should be serving. Um, and so mis- the miseducation of the Negro is different than arguing about access and opportunity to mainstream education. Woodson is concerned with the kind of education that is being made available because of the potential damage and harm that it causes, not only to individual black people, but also to the larger kind of political project that education should be in service of, right? And so there's a distinction between those things that Woodson is always clear about um, and that I just tried to kind of tease out in that part of the text that you're referring to. Now, people should go buy this book. There's so much more to talk about, but I did want to ask you, what do you think the lessons are for today? So you help us uncover the history of a pedagogy that's rooted in freedom and liberation and Black people, and that is so beautifully rooted in celebrating Blackness. Uh, what, what lessons can we take away for today, if any? I think one of the biggest lessons that we you know, should take away from this book is, well, one, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about so many of the legislative campaigns that are happening across different states to restrict how we teach about race and the history of racial inequality in this country. And I can't help but think about the resonance between those aspects of the current political environment and the kind of environment that teachers like Carter G. Woodson and the teachers like Tessie McGee, who is a, a central figure in the book, who is a teacher in Louisiana who uses Woodson's curriculum to challenge curriculum standards through subversive pedagogical practices. I think that there's a lot that we need to kind of understand as being in relationship with one another. To say that the current banning of what people are calling CRT in school is not altogether new. It's actually a reflection of a very long history of racial politics in the context of curriculum and school policies that works to kind of distort, you know, the history of racial injustice for the purposes of holding up a certain set of myths about the nation, but also really kind of modern human history that serves the interests of a particular group of folks over others. Carter G. Woodson was very aware of this, which is why he created the organizations that he created, which is why he worked and helped organize Black teachers in the way that he did during the period of Jim Crow. But also one of the things that I would say that why the book is important is because we see a tradition of Black educators working to navigate the constraints of the American school to seek out meaningful education for themselves and also for the students that they're serving. And we realize that many of the strategies that they employed in order to cultivate the minds of so many of the leaders that we love to celebrate, whether it be Angela Davis, who reflected on her Black teachers in Birmingham, Alabama, or someone like Martin Luther King Jr. or John Lewis, who would say the same things, right, about how their teachers intentionally offered them material and intellectual resources that exceeded the formal curriculum and also that critiqued the formal curriculum. It's something that should be instructed for teachers today, is that this is a history and a tradition that they can look to as they work and strive to be critical educators or anti-racist teachers today, is that this is not necessarily a new set of problems, but is actually 
the resurgence of a set of politics and surveillance practices in school that's, that has always been there um, when we look to the history of African-American education. And likewise, Black educators had always been developing strategies to navigate and to contest those constraints. And that can be instructive and inspiring for teachers today who are finding themselves in such a hostile educational climate for folks who want to teach the truth about the history of injustice and racial inequality. Um, that, that's one of the most pressing things that I think the book offers for the contemporary moment in light of, of the current political climate. Now, one of the questions that we ask everybody is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I think that one of the, a piece of advice that I'm, I'm always constantly thinking about, given the work that I do, uh, is very much so tied to the communities that I come from and the people that loved me enough to kind of support me to do the things that I do. I recognize the disconnect between those communities and many of the institutions that I have to navigate as a professor to do the work that I'm trying to do in terms of producing scholarship on African-American history is that I have to always be aware of what it means to be in and not of the institutions that I work for and the institutions that I have to navigate in order to advance the intellectual work that I'm striving to do, right? So that piece of advice of being clear about what it means to be in and not of a particular institution, whether that be Harvard University or whether that be a public school system that we know um, continues to alienate students from communities that we come from, even as we have to kind of work inside of these institutions in order to advance the causes that we are trying to advance, is that we have to be have the political clarity to recognize where there's a disconnect between our own political aims and intentions and the intentions of the institutions that we're working within. And that's something that we constantly have to remind ourselves of. And I know I'm constantly having to remind myself of um, knowing the difference about what it means to be in and not of an educational institution that may not have necessarily been built to support the work that I'm doing or the communities that I come from. Boom. And the last question we ask everybody is, you know, there are a lot of people, as you know, who've like taken to the streets, they've done all the things, they emailed, protested, they shut the thing down, they ran for office, they did the things, and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted to. What do you say to those people, the people losing hope, the people who will read your book and be like, okay, got it, get it, education's been screwed for a long time, we're dealing with this whole critical race theory thing, which looks like a step back. What do you say to the people whose hope is challenged? The will to contest injustice and the will to allow suffering to speak, despite so many efforts to silence the voices and perspectives of people in our community. The ongoing struggle to do that is actually one of the most important ways that Black folks have continued to insist on their own sense of self-worth and to assert their own dignity in the world, despite so many efforts to challenge and to maim that very thing. And so I would say that the struggle that we're continuing to engage in is essential for us to continue to pursue meaningful lives despite so many efforts to undermine Black social and political life. There's beauty in recognizing that insistence over the course of generations in the communities that we come from. It's one of the most important parts of the human story in the modern world is the story of Black people's will to survive and persistent struggle across generations despite ongoing retrenchment. This is not to 
necessarily say that black life is only about struggle because we know that our lives are also about small moments of beauty and our own interior experiences, whether it be in family or in community, that's not only about responding to injustice and to racial hostility in the world, um, but there are very important lessons that we can glean from black people's will to continue to pursue justice and to fight against inequality despite so many efforts to undermine that work and to kind of crush the hope in our communities. We come from a tradition of folks who have given us resources, cultural resources and spiritual armor to continue to cover ourselves with, to continue moving forward. And I think that that's something that's beautiful. And that's one of the best ways that we can honor the past and the people that came before us is to continue to operate in that tradition um, and to continue to hold up a better vision of the world than what we see forming around us. That's one of the greatest gifts we can offer to ourselves and also to the world writ large. How do people stay in touch with you? How do people follow you? How do people... Right, yeah. So I'm definitely on Facebook, but I'm also on Twitter. And I'm new to Twitter, I should say. But um, you can follow me on Twitter at Jarvis R. Given. You know, it's just my first name, middle initial, and last name, at Jarvis R. Givens. I'm on Twitter. Um, and I've, you know, joined within the past kind of month and a half. And it's found it to be a really great space to share more about the book, but also to engage with an intellectual community, you know, about these ideas, people who are of like mind, um, but also who have been pushing my thinking forward as well. So that's been great, but definitely on Twitter, definitely on Facebook and also available by email, you know, that also still works. (laughs) And my email address is Jarvis underscore Givens at gse.harvard.edu. Boom. Well, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Sounds good. Don't go anywhere. More Podtake the People's coming. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mer and mer somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor Meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to 
throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stresses happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P.com slash people. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. And today we've got Kaya interviewing John King Jr. to talk about education and his current run for the governor of Maryland. Let's do it. Hello, Pod Save the People family. This is Kaya, and I am super excited to be interviewing one of, I think, America's greatest treasures, Dr. John B. King Jr. And more than that, he is my friend. John is an educator. John is a paragon of aspiration, and I am excited for him to share a little bit about himself in a little bit of a deeper way. Some of you know John as the former uh, Secretary of Education under President Obama. Some of you know John as the former CEO of the Education Trust. You may know him in his principalships in Boston or in his teaching in Puerto Rico, um, or you just may have heard him speak somewhere in the most inspiring and compelling way that uh, many folks you know, have experienced. And so uh, I want to welcome my friend John King to Pod Save the People. Welcome, John. Thanks so much, Kaya. It's fun to get to catch up with you. Um, so let's start with the education piece because that's how most people know you. And I wanna I want you to share with our folks kind of why you got into education. 
it's an important story. You know, I grew up as a kid, the son of two public school educators. My father was African-American, spent his whole career in education. My mother was born in Puerto Rico, came to New York as a kid, learned English in the New York City public schools, and became a teacher and a school counselor. Whoop, whoop. Shout out to the teacher's kids. (laughs) Uh Education was very much a part of their lives, right? Um, But they both passed away when I was a kid. My mom passed when I was eight. She had a heart attack, October 4th grade. Uh, And then my dad passed away when I was 12. And during the period in between, it was just my dad and me. My dad was struggling with undiagnosed Alzheimer's. So home was really hard, inconsistent, unstable, scary a lot of the time. And the thing that saved me was teachers, great public school teachers who made school a place that was safe and engaging, compelling, interesting. And later in life, I decided to become a teacher really to try to do for other kids what teachers had done for me. And that's really driven my whole career in education and public service. The idea of school being a place that is safe and engaging and compelling to kids who are having trouble at home, but to all kids, I think is kind of what we, all of us in the education field aspire to create. You've had a long and storied career in education. What are you most proud of that you've accomplished in your work in education? I always go back to the kids that I worked with as a teacher and principal. And, you know, when you're At the classroom or school level, you can just see your impact so directly. And I'm still in touch with a lot of my former students and hear about their lives. One of my former students is actually in the Massachusetts State Legislature, uh, representing that community uh, where she grew up and where our school is. So that's probably the part of my career I think back on the most, that direct impact. But then, of course, on, on the policy side, you know, we worked really hard when I was secretary to focus the national conversation about education on issues of equity, addressing racial disparities in school discipline, diversifying our teaching profession, really tackling the obstacles to post-secondary success for low-income students and students of color. Uh, And we did really important work on trying to begin the process of restoring access to Pell Grants for incarcerated students so that they can pursue higher education while incarcerated. And that was a multi-year process. I continued working on with the Education Trust, and fortunately, the law changed just this past year to restore Pell Grant access for incarcerated students. So it's the tangible steps that you take that hopefully expand opportunity that you, you know, remember and are proud of. And we still have a long way to go, especially when we are now trying to recover from a global pandemic, which rocked our public education system in ways that we had never imagined. In some cases, really bringing to the forefront some of those equity issues in ways that a lot of America just wasn't aware of. So when you think about the education system, uh, one that many families deeply distrust now even more than before because we weren't able to meet the needs of so many young people during this pandemic, where do we go from here? 
Yeah, I mean, what you're saying is so important. I mean, COVID really was an equity disaster mm. on top of a deeply inequitable system. Yeah, You know, we're talking about an academic impact that was severe. You know, some estimates are that for students of color and low-income students, you're talking about six to 12 months of what at, at trust we would call unfinished learning, right? Mm-hmm. Learning opportunities students didn't have because school was either just online or hybrid. But more than the academic impact, there's the socio-emotional impact. Kids who experience the trauma of losing loved ones, kids who experience mm-hmm. their families and economic crisis, losing jobs, losing housing, kids who are just isolated from peers and those important relationships with peers and teachers that are so critical for kids' socio-emotional well-being and mental health. So we have a lot to make up for. I think we have to tackle the academic consequences. I'd love to see us mobilize a national tutoring corps. Yes. Young people have recently graduated from college, retired teachers, other retired professionals. How do we get students working you know, one-on-one, two-on-one with a tutor who's well-trained with high-quality materials, helping them uh, accelerate their learning. I think we're going to need more time. We should be thinking about summer and after school and weekends and vacation acceleration academies, but those all have to be fun. So we have to find ways to blend the academic work with STEM robotics or sports or arts so that kids want to be there for that additional time. And then we've really got to center relationships. And I think about this particularly for some of our high school students who've gotten disconnected from school during this period. We've got to make sure every kid has a strong, positive relationship with an adult at school or in their broader school community. It could be someone in the after-school program, the summer program, big brother, big sister, but some adult in their lives is going to help them feel connected, feel seen, and get back on track. So we've got a lot of work to do. There's federal money coming. That will be very helpful. But this is going to require real leadership on the part of uh, superintendents, principals, classroom teachers. Absolutely. And the community. I mean, you you called for a national tutor corps. I think both you and I are engaged with the GetReadySet.org campaign, which is a campaign to uh, mobilize Americans to support students in their return to school by providing opportunities for people to tutor or to mentor or to serve in other ways. So uh, if you're interested in heeding the call and helping our young people get back on track be a part of America's Student Support Network at GetReadySet.org. That's G-E-T-R-E-A-D-Y-S-E-T.org, GetReadySet.org, and join the movement to support America's young people. This idea of not just attending to the academic needs, but to the social and emotional needs, to engagement, to motivation, I think this opens up a broader opportunity for us to redefine what success looks like. Success is no longer just math and reading scores, right? Success is about happiness. Success is about the ability to access post-secondary opportunities. Success is about a whole new set of things. And we're finally having that conversation. Um, So I'm excited about that. 
A lot of your work, we've talked a little bit about your family history in terms of why you became an educator, but your broader work is deeply informed by your family history, and you have been generous with your journey around understanding your family's history of enslavement. And so I wanted to ask you to share a little bit with us about what you've learned. Well, I'm sitting in Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, where I live, and that is about 25 miles from where my great-grandfather was enslaved in Gaithersburg, Maryland. And the property where he was enslaved is actually still owned by a family that are direct line descendants of the family that owned my family. And they've maintained the property much like it was in 1863. The main house is still in the main house. It was built in the 1700s. And the cabin where my great-grandfather and his family lived as enslaved people is still standing on the property. Wow. So we've had the opportunity in our family to get to know the family that owned the property, to stand in that cabin, to walk the grounds, including seeing where uh, there's an unmarked burial ground for enslaved people for prior generations of my family. And it's been a fascinating journey for a few reasons. One is you really get a sense of the profound intimacy and cruelty of the institution of slavery. Uh The cabin is not 30 yards from the main house. This was two families living in the same physical space where one family owned the other family. You also get a sense of how much work we have to do as a country to grapple with this institution. You know, the family's been very welcoming and gracious and we've really become friends. But I will say that I think for them, it's been a journey of really thinking about the significance of the institution of slavery differently. Even though they grew up on a plantation, it wasn't central in their educational experience to understand what slavery was, how it worked. So that's been a journey. The other thing that's really profound is, you know, in three generations, my family went from enslaved in that cabin to serving in the cabinet of the first black president. Yeah. I'm really very hopeful yes. about that. Right? Yes. That shows what is possible if we give yes. have the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I gosh, there's so much in this story. I, I've come to grapple with this idea of the intimacy of slavery. I visited the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana and was stunned to see how closely these people live together, the owners of the plantation and the enslaved, and how much their day-to-day interactions were so close and so intimate. And I don't think Mm -hmm. that I realized that until I was in the physical space to see how close the houses were or to understand how much the enslavers relied on the slaves, not just for work in the farm and the fields, but to cook their food, to take care of their children, right? This was a very intimate arrangement that I think forces us to definitely examine the institution in very different ways. And this is hard stuff. It's hard stuff for descendants of the enslaved. It's hard stuff for descendants of the enslavers. Talk a little bit more about how you became friends, because there's a whole lot of folks out here who would not want to be friendly with, (laughs) with those folks. They really welcomed us 
into the property. I mean, we, you know, we, we just showed up. My cousin just showed up one day, knocked on the door and said, you know, our, our family was enslaved here. And I think there are a lot of folks who wouldn't have been open to the conversation and to building a relationship. And they really have been, you know, they were using the cabin as a storage shed mm-hmm. before they met us. And now having met us, they cleaned it out and now are thinking about it as a question of preserving and understanding our history. Yeah, They've really engaged us in conversation to try to understand uh, more about our perspective and more about the history so that they stop saying slaves and now say, as we do, enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helped them explore what their history means. You know, their ancestors actually served in the Confederacy. It's one of the things that people don't always realize about Maryland, even though Maryland was on the side of the Union. A lot of Marylanders went to fight for the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. That's complicated. I mean, that sort of illustrates a belief in and conviction around the institution of slavery and preserving that institution that I think folks don't always attribute to Maryland, but it was very much a part of the state's history, just as Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass were very much a part of the state's history. Well, and and this is what we don't teach in school, but we'll get to that soon. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's right. That's right. <laughs> the other thing is I think they have started to explore for themselves how do they reconcile their values with the reality of their family history. You know, that's something that we just haven't done well as a country. You know, we try to act like, you know, this stuff never happened or that was so long ago that we don't need to talk about it, think about it. It's very different from maybe, let's say, how Germany has approached as a country grappling with the history of the Holocaust. And I think Germans understand that it is very much a part of their story as Germans and that they have to continuously grapple with that history and think about how they repair in whatever ways they can the extraordinary horror of the Holocaust. And we just, we, we haven't done that around slavery uh, at the individual level or at the level of a state or country. And yet it seems like such a logical process to follow, yet here we are enmeshed in the middle of culture wars, trying to figure out what a racial reckoning means for our country. We are debating what history can and should be taught in classrooms and um, whether it is culturally responsive pedagogy or critical race theory or even the conversation around police brutality, incarceration, all of these things are swirling right now. And so what can we learn from Germany? What can we learn from your family's experience um, that will help us think about this particular moment in time? We have to tell the whole story, right? That we have to prepare young people to solve today's problems by understanding where we've been. And that means, yes, of course, celebrating the beauty of the Declaration of Independence or the incredible aspirations of 
America's promise of equality and opportunity. But we also have to reckon with the institution of slavery that has been with us from before we even became a country. Uh, We have to reckon with Jim Crow and segregation and how those systems were used to try to maintain a caste system. Uh, We have to reckon with Japanese-American internment. We have to reckon with the horrible treatment of Native Americans, right? Like, we can't be serious about today's problems if we don't understand all of that history because the echoes are so profound. The echoes of slavery are in our gaps today in health and in wealth, right? The echoes of the anti-immigrant sentiment that allowed us to imprison Japanese Americans during World War II, that there are echoes of that in the so-called Muslim ban that President Trump tried to put in place, right? There's, we have a history mm-hmm. of anti-immigrant sentiment and violating human rights of immigrant communities. Like, we, we have to equip young people with that knowledge so that they can navigate. We also have to expose all young people young people of color, but also white young people to examples of black excellence, Latino excellence, Asian American excellence, Native American excellence, right? Uh, Everybody should be reading Toni Morrison. Yes. Right. To be well read. Right. And so that also has to be a part of how we think about um, the role of schools to prepare all young people for a diverse post-secondary world, a diverse career and civic participation in a diverse society. I mean, you know that I firmly and fundamentally believe that and have thrown my whole entire self into this project called Reconstruction, which seeks to illuminate Black excellence, Black resilience, Black innovation, Black joy, and an unapologetically Black education because the American public system doesn't tell our stories. Talk to me about what it felt like to see yourself in the books that you were reading or the curriculum that you were exposed to in school. I mean, I remember so vividly the first time I read Down These Mean Streets by Piri Thomas, a Puerto Rican Afro-Latino author, and had that moment of thinking, oh, I see me in this. Mm-hmm. His experience is like my experience. That was so validating. You know, I remember reading uh, Man, Child, and the Promised Land and having that same sense, oh, I see myself in these texts. And it was affirming, particularly during a time in my life when home was incredibly difficult. It was so important to have that access point. And I really worry for young people who don't get that, who don't get to see themselves, because it really can cause you to doubt yourself, to feel adrift. And we just have to be vigilant as educators and as a community about making sure that all kids have that experience of what I would call windows and mirrors, right? Opportunities to see themselves reflected, to feel validated and seen, but also opportunities to see worlds beyond their own and to explore new worlds and new experiences and to have that experience of seeing the world from someone else's perspective that you get through literature. But we have to really be systematic about those windows and mirrors. And and the honest truth is, as a country, we haven't been. 
And in fact, we are watching state legislatures across the country prevent teachers from teaching the full history, preventing school districts from presenting curricula that shows those windows and mirrors. Um, You say in your recent op-ed in the Washington Post, this is all part of a calculated ploy to draw America's classrooms into culture wars for political advantage and fear-mongering. Say a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, you have you know, this kind of coordinated strategy across right-wing media in particular to generate fear and anxiety about uh, what they refer to as critical race theory. Well, critical race theory is, you know, a, a body of legal scholarship about how systems can operate to oppress people of color. There's no first grade teacher who's teaching critical race theory in her Come on, say that again. Say that again. (laughs) There's no first grade teacher teaching critical race theory. It's it's a ploy, right? To put out that phrase to try to make people anxious and nervous. And, you know, look, is every teacher well-prepared to grapple with issues of race in thoughtful, nuanced ways in their classroom? No, we have to, we have work to do on teacher training and professional development, of course, and, and it won't go right in every classroom. But at the end of the day, we are lying to ourselves if we tell an incomplete history. And this right-wing effort is really an effort at a kind of national self-deception. Similar in many ways, to the folks who are trying to pretend like on January 6th, it was just tourists in the Capitol and not an armed insurrection. On the one hand, it's almost absurd, right? Because it's such an obvious attempt to use division for political advantage. That's right. But it's deadly serious. And it's already changing the law in states and it's already having a chilling effect on teachers' practices. Absolutely. I mean, it is both laughable and it is deadly serious. And it is a, I think, a last ditch attempt to preserve power. Literally, don't believe your eyes, right? You saw what happened, but that's not exactly what happened. And so we have, um, we have to do something very different. And Uh, That takes leadership, and you are actually running for, uh, running to be the governor of Maryland, running to be the next governor of Maryland, my next door neighbor state, except we're not exactly a state. Hopefully, when you get to be governor, you'll help us address that for us Washingtonians who desire desire statehood. We just want to be free like everybody else. Um, So why are you running for governor of Maryland? The same things that drove me to become a teacher, it's the conviction that public institutions can be a force for good in people's lives. And governors are uniquely positioned to work across the silos to see the intersection between education policy and housing policy, the intersection between healthcare policy and the environment, right? And governors can actually mobilize all the resources of their state to help improve the quality of people's lives. And so it's that opportunity to have impact that drives me to run. And 
there's a crowded democratic field with lots of candidates who are also convicted and see the opportunity for intersection and more. What makes you different? What makes you uniquely qualified to do this job? Well, look, we are fortunate in Maryland to have a a lot of talented folks who want to lead and contribute. That's a good thing. You know, I think I bring a unique combination of a lived experience of really understanding uh, the difference that government can make because public schools saved my life. A unique experience as an educator, thinking about, as I know you did as a superintendent, but also in, throughout your career in education, thinking about kids as whole people, yeah. right? Thinking about the whole child, mm-hmm. the intersection in their lives of these different forces. I think as an educator, I'll bring that to the role of governor, thinking about our people in Maryland, our Marylanders as whole people and seeing that if you don't have the opportunity to have paid family leave, then you can't take care of your loved one who's struggling with illness. And so then maybe you have to leave your job and that hurts all of us, right? That uh, when we're losing farmland on the Eastern shore to saltwater intrusion, because we haven't taken enough action on climate, that has implications for people's ability to earn a livelihood and support their families. So we can't think in siloed policy terms. I get that as an educator. And I've had leadership experience in government, making government work for folks. You know, the budget of the U.S. Education Department is billions of dollars bigger than the budget of the state of Maryland. I've run big things and made them work Uh, for the good of the public. I've run big things. I love it. Um, (laughs) Let's close. (laughs) Let's close with uh, another cool family story of yours. Tell us about your uncle, Hal. Yeah, he was an extraordinary person. And I think his life exhibits a lot of how I think about our country. You know, so he grew up in a segregated New York City as a kid and chose to go to Tuskegee, Alabama, even more deeply segregated place, to train to be among the nation's first black pilots in the U.S. military. And he became a Tuskegee Airman, served uh, during World War II. When he came home, he had been trained as an accountant, wanted to get a job as an accountant, couldn't because of his race. And so he chose to become a firefighter. Right. So even though he'd had to overcome discrimination as Tuskegee Airman and met discrimination upon returning from the service, he still chose a career where he would spend his time trying to save other people's lives, people who sometimes didn't see his full humanity. Then he went back into the military and became a career Air Force officer. Uh, And then when he left the military, when he retired from the military, he uh, continued to work in public service and health care and so forth. He um, was patriotic throughout his whole life. You know, I remember him putting out the American flag in front of the house each day, even though he had experienced extraordinary discrimination and frustration with the pace of change in the country. And when he passed away, he wanted to be interred at Arlington National Cemetery. You know, he would have been totally justified to be bitter about the way that the airmen were treated, the way uh, society treated black people, 
the fact that he was asked to serve at a time when black people's uh, legal rights were uh, less than those of white people and, and an ability to vote was regularly denied. But he didn't come away from that bitter. I think he came away resolute that even though America wasn't still, even at the end of his life, living up fully to the principles of equality and opportunity, it could mm-hmm. and should, that's in the process of becoming more true to those values. And I just draw a lot of inspiration from his patriotism, because it wasn't a blind patriotism that ignores the blemishes, the failures. It was uh, engaged patriotism that, that acknowledges those and then says, we all have a role to play in working to make it better. And he made a huge difference in my life after I uh, actually got kicked out of high school uh, as a kid, you know, very angry mm-hmm. because of the trauma I'd experienced and got in a lot of trouble. I got kicked out and I actually went to live with my aunt and uncle and he played a pivotal role in, in my life in helping me really take responsibility. I remember the conversation where he told me, neither you nor I can change the things that happened to you as a kid, but you decide now the kind of man you want to be and the kind of life you want to have. And that was a really important moment for me that really shaped my trajectory in profound ways. And, and his example inspires me every day. John, thank you for sharing that. I was moved uh, when I read about Uh, your Uncle Hal, and I just thought it was a fitting way to kind of wrap up the point of this conversation, which is this idea of true patriotism. In fact, you say in your piece, true patriotism requires naming where we have fallen short and recognizing how far we have to go in the pursuit of freedom. I am thrilled to call you a comrade and a friend in this pursuit of freedom, in this pursuit of making America live up to the country that we all know it can and should be. I appreciate your leadership, your willingness to step into the gubernatorial race. Oh my gosh, I think you're a little crazy, but it's good crazy, and so <laughs> I'm supportive of it. And uh, and I'm excited about what you will continue to bring uh, to families and communities across Maryland and, frankly, across the United States with your service. Thank you for being on Pod Save the People. Thanks, Kaya. Proud to be your friend and always an admirer of the great work that you did in D.C. and that you're doing now at Reconstruction. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pods of the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Shinyangwe. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 